0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards, and I hope you're all enjoying the lockdown exit, having the barbecues, getting the beer out, a few burgers. We went down to the um, South Coast, a really unglamorous part of the South Coast, just to do some swimming in the sea in a place called Frinton. For those of you who don't know Frinton, it's, uh, it's not Brighton. It's not, you know, the glamour of Brighton. And it was... Packs. we were there at the weekend and uh, yeah that was exactly it yeah burgers my uh, burger yeah beer oh yeah I'm another of those kind of, everywhere you went you could hear the sounds of the barbecues and the beer and uh, it was as far removed from the early images of lockdown which conveyed emptiness and an eerie silence as it was possible to be and remember we're still meant to be in a kind of lockdown situation but we you know I'll be in my we that was the kind of image of this phase of lockdown and I'll reflect on that in a moment and uh, quite a few other things as well Brexit we're going to look at Brexit it's back never went away and it's a huge huge story for reasons I'll explore. Talk briefly about the Emily Maitlis saga, of course it's a footnote in the great scheme of things but I think it does have some lessons about the BBC and its future and its purpose which I'll talk about but before all of that uh, just a reminder if it's okay with all of you that the next live virtual show Rock and Roll Politics is on uh, June the 17th and the tickets are available on the King's Place website. Hope you can all join me. The great thing about these live virtual shows, as distinct from the actual physical shows, is that everyone can come along and watch and take part and join in. I always get tweets, which I love and very nice of you, those of you who do it, who sometimes say after one of the ones, say in London at King's Place or Edinburgh, Can't you do the rock and roll politics in Manchester or Sheffield? And the answer is, when we're all allowed out again, I'd love to, very much. But in the meantime, the great thing about the virtual show is that everyone can watch from anywhere. So I hope you do, as I say, the tickets are on the website. One of the interesting things about the lockdown and this phase of the so-called exit strategy the word strategy being perhaps misleading are are that tensions are beginning to grow between the scientists and the government. The dance between the scientists and the government have been really interesting from the very beginning and in terms of this particular phase some of the scientists on SAGE have said that they think the exit strategy is moving too quickly that the infection rate is still too high for such risks to be taken. This is interesting on so many grounds because, one, it removes part of the protective shield that ministers use from Boris Johnson down we're following the science. I love that term, the science. It's so misleading because it implies that there is only one route, once the scientists have declared what that route is, where well, we follow the science, well, we follow the science. These kind of evasive terms are always used as protective shields, often with very dangerous consequences. Another of my favourites are used in the. Cameron and Blair eras of public service reform where both Blair and then to a a more preposterous extent Cameron said you're either reform or anti-reform so in other words if you didn't support their version of say fracturing the NHS in Cameron's terms you know setting up all these agencies and causing chaos you were against all change of any kind you were a small c conservative and Tony Blair used to say there is reform versus anti-reform you know frankly you know Gordon is anti-reform he wouldn't say that publicly but he did privately and this one we follow the science as if there's only one science and this has been blown apart with the public dissent from some of the scientists over the lifting of various lockdown constraints in number 10 i get the impression they think the dissenting scientists are saying it to get their quotes in because if anything goes wrong when the public inquiry takes place they can say look we warned and i think that is the assumption in number 10 that it's not being done purely because the scientists are following the science but because they are making calculations about how they are received when the public inquiry comes about but again this shows the tension between the politicians and the scientists we saw it again at the one of the press conferences in number 10 over the weekend where whichever of the professors were standing at the podium implicitly criticised Cummings by saying that the guidance applies to every single individual whoever they are and that's the nearest a scientist has not followed the science of being obedient to the government in making clear his disapproval of what Cummings did. And I suspect we will continue to see tensions between the government and the scientists in the coming weeks. The next test uh, is clearly Johnson aches to reduce that two-metre rule, that people should be two metres apart. He's almost uh, said as much during his rare public appearances. But at the moment, he hasn't got the backing of the science and he needs it because although Johnson shows every sign of being in one of his more meandering moods by the way did any of you see him at the liaison committee of MPs this is the easiest gig a prime minister faces that uh meeting with the liaison committee not because the MPs are patsies but because of the structure there are so many MPs wanting to ask questions to the Prime Minister and so many topics that need to be covered that it's impossible to interrogate a Prime Minister to his or her discomfort. Even Theresa May, a figure not really at ease in any public forum, which is remarkable when you think about it considering that she wanted to be and indeed became a Prime Minister, but she isn't. Well she emerged from these liaison committee meetings wholly unscathed. And for Johnson, it was even easier because these vast numbers of committee chairs were on some Zoom in different parts of the country. And he was sitting grandly in number 10, just looking at 18 different screens. It made it impossible for any one of those squares, those 18 squares, to really get him because by the time they were getting somewhere, Bernard Jenkin, quite rightly, not again because he was being patsy, just uh, time up, you've had your five minutes, and some of the MPs are completely bewildered because time flies when you're in interviewing anyone, let alone the Prime Minister. But Johnson didn't quite get away with it. Not because any MP landed a punch from their Zoom office in um, wherever they were, but because he was so openly... Not in command of detail, wasn't always aware of what his own government's policies were in particular cases, and was so hesitant and mumbling. So interesting that a figure who was a journalist, a columnist, who wrote books, who clearly has an interest in language, cannot use language. People still say to me, Well, you know, whatever else, he's a great communicator, and he's not. He has, in his time as a leader, deployed slogans let's get Brexit done and all these kind of things. Do or die <laughs> October the thirty first we're gonna leave <laughs> and then <laughs> Brexit. But that, that's not a great command of language. Tony Blair had a melodious command of language. Thatcher had a strident but a gripping command of language. He doesn't. He he is hesitant and uneasy when being questioned which is why I suppose he avoids being questioned that's partly because he's not often in command of all the detail but there is also an unease about language and how to use it in a way that is most effective but anyway there he was at the liaison committee now he aches to reduce that two meter distancing rule but hasn't yet got the scientists to back it up And he needs to say when he takes that leap, in case it goes wrong, that the science backs him. So it's going to be interesting, maybe by the time you're listening to the podcast, he has prevailed over the scientists and is able to announce a reduction in that social distancing measurement. But at the moment, that isn't the case. And it's another interesting dance. I get the impression that at the beginning of this whole nightmare, political pressure and influence was absolutely overwhelming and it will be interesting to see what a public inquiry says about that in other words the science tried as much as possible to fit in with the number 10 world view of the pandemic when I say world view I'm being quite generous because it took a particularly distinct view which was at odds with the rest of the world but you know what I mean they kind of found the science to back it up but at the moment I detect a degree of resistance from some of the scientists and not always willing to dance to Number 10's tunes. And there they are, a minister and a scientist at each press conference. Mostly the scientists deliver what the government wants, but not always now. And I suspect that dance has some way to go. And obviously a key staging post in that relationship was the whole Cummings drama. Now, we spent more than long enough on the Cummings saga last week on the podcast, so I'm not going to reflect much on it but I think when you have one of the scientists one of the professors publicly distancing himself by saying everybody should adhere by the guidelines you can see how the affair has contributed to a degree of tension between scientists and the government. It's also I think a sign of number 10's extraordinary capacity to withstand whatever assaults are coming towards them and stay the course. They decided from the beginning that they were going to keep Cummings and although they had many MPs on Twitter saying Cummings should resign, they had many more private messages saying from MPs we've never been inundated with so many emails saying Cummings has to go, they got the Daily Mail attacking them and they did not move. They said he wasn't going to go and he didn't go. It's a very interesting model and it's a reminder of how this operation in Number 10 functions in a wholly different way to all previous ones since 1945. I wrote a book on prime ministers and what is noteworthy in each case in different ways how prime ministers and their entourages respond to external pressures. Theresa May obsessed with trying to keep the Conservative Party together. Endless meetings with Eurosceptics. Endless meetings with other MPs. Endless meetings with the DUP, who were part of her majority in the House of Commons. Uh, in the New Labour era, if the Sun or the Times uttered a word of criticism in a leader column, there was near panic as they tried to work out how to appease Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers. And of course, a uh, Very vivid comparison is Tony Blair sacked his close friend Peter Mandelson twice from the government, both times, in my view, unfairly. There wasn't enough to merit the potential wrecking of a career. And Johnson, with far more ammunition you know, the the eye test drive to Barnacast and all the rest of the nonsense kept his advisor. They stick with what they have decided to do, this vote-leave entourage in number 10. Governing is a campaign, as Brexit was a campaign. And of course the hunger to keep Cummings is partly to do with Brexit. And this is where I think it has wider ramifications. If you think of the pressure they resisted over keeping Cummings, I suspect they will do so again over these current... Brexit negotiations the trade deal negotiations all logic suggests that they should extend the period of time for these negotiations no trade deal has been done so speedily in normal circumstances and this trade deal is taking place in Monty Python like circumstances where Barnier and David Frost and all these people are on Skype or Zoom, uh, no physical meetings since the virus took hold across Europe, and meetings of such complexity with such high stakes were anyway delayed because of the virus. And yet, number 10 are adamant for reasons of machismo and a kind of fantastical ideological commitment to their view of what Brexit can bring that these talks must end at the end of December. Now some businesses who uh, fear they will be badly hit by this wonder whether it is all a kind of bluster that Number 10 wrongly have convinced themselves that a kind of machismo that they exerted in the negotiations over the withdrawal agreement resulted in the EU backing down. It's complete fantasy. When Johnson basically offered in talks with the Irish government the same deal that the EU had proposed in the first place, they couldn't believe their luck. The, you know, the Irish phoned up all the others. He's offering us the same deal we propose about having a border from Northern Ireland to the rest of the UK. And and he and Johnson oh, yeah, got an oven-wrapped, uh, microwave-ready deal. Uh, 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 good deal, good deal. I think they have convinced themselves that the Machismo brought all kinds of concessions, whereas the European Union took it, thinking, "God, this is what we wanted in the first place." Before we moved, because Theresa May asked us to move. But anyway, one way or another, if they don't, and there's absolutely no sign that the European Union are gonna back down over things that incidentally were agreed in the withdrawal agreement. I don't know whether Boris Johnson knows what was in it or whether he has decided he can renege on it but they're not going to concede things that were agreed and signed up to by both parties in the autumn and so there is a chance that Britain crashes out without a deal and I think Cummings is there because Gove, Raab, those of absolute ideological certainty on Brexit, knows that he offers a kind of crusading rigidity that is not part of Johnson's political repertoire. Johnson, of course, famously might have campaigned for Remain. He wrote those two articles, one for Remain, one for Brexit, at the beginning of this drama. But Cummings has been for Brexit since he was six months old, and is unyielding in his desire, get it done, as Johnson would say. And by the way, I don't think Cummings could utter that without being hesitant. He, his performance in the so-called Rose Garden of Number 10 was so revealingly hesitant. So they want him there to make sure it's done. And one of the great challenges for business leaders and others is how to respond to this, because The many calculations in number 10 are, A, I think they've convinced themselves it would be good for the British economy, for the whole thing to end in December, come what may, and B, even if there are short-term hits, it will be absolutely intermingled with the virus drama, so people will blame the virus and not Brexit. And the great Charles Grant, the guy who runs the Centre for European Reform, tweeted the other day, he had had a session with quite a few business leaders, presumably on Zoom, and they were expressing their alarm at what is happening with these trade talks. But they were also very worried about speaking out because they knew how vindictive this number 10 could be. And so they're in this circular trap of not wanting to speak out but if they don't speak out the path is even clearer for number 10 to prevail and in David Frost their main negotiator they seem to have someone utterly willing to meet their demands he himself personally is a rather reticent personality quite uh, uh, he is a genuine Brexiteer obviously you wouldn't go through all this if you didn't believe in it But he's not one of the sort of macho, strident types. But his tweets and his letter to Barnier were really strident, as if Cummings might have had a hand in the tone. I know Frost speaks to Cummings more than he does Johnson. Cummings is at the heart of what's going on with Brexit, and it's one of the many reasons why Brexit hovered over the way they buttressed Cummings against everything the weekend before last and those brexit trade talks i'll be amazed if johnson applies for an extension it would take legislation in the house of commons he's not going to do it and so what happens with brexit i suspect will become a very big story again from now until the end of the year and well beyond And it's interesting, you know, with Twitter, because we all tweet away about whatever, Brexit, the Cummings affair. and God, the the weekend of the Cummings thing. I wasn't off Twitter. I kept driving to charge the phone. I was using Twitter so much to follow it, joining in. And it is completely deceptive because in... Twitter storms. You think you have some influence over the course of events. You say, oh, wow, look at the number of people retweeting my tweet. You know, the, the way things are going, I'm going to change the course of history. And of course, it changes nothing. A government with a majority of 80 acquired at a recent election can change what it likes and can do what it likes. People on Twitter are powerless it's a form of therapy and probably delusional therapy at that and yet it kind of sways people in the media especially into thinking oh wow we've got quite a lot of power here and this is of course one of the challenges for the BBC the BBC is in a strange position in legally being obliged to be impartial and yet its political journalists and presenters also of course well, not of course, actually, but but do want to be players as well. It's manifested itself in all kinds of way. When the newspapers under the New Labour era started complaining about spin, a great kind of red herring of a story, frankly, the BBC joined in overexcitedly and totally gave a disproportionate focus on spin and Alistair Campbell. There were three panoramas on spin – because they wanted to be players and that kind of allowed them to do it because it wasn't a left right issue it was just are they distorting things with their presentational techniques there was a bit of that with control freakery and so on and in this drama Uh, but by no means for the first time, and this is a key to all of this, Emily Maitlis said uh, on Newsnight in the immediate aftermath of the Cummings drama, she introduced the programme by saying that um, everybody knew that he broke the guidelines and so on. And in under 24 hours the BBC had issued a statement criticising Maitlis for what she had said. This was interesting on so many levels. Say it's a mere footnote to the whole virus story and the whole Cummings drama and what it tells us about number 10. But it is important in a way. The first thing that disturbed me was that while Emily Maitlis was shafted and named, whoever took the decision to criticise her did so anonymously. It was a BBC statement. There are very well-paid managers, lots of them, who are always mouthing the cliché that it's the duty of the BBC to hold politicians to account and, of course, condemn politicians when they don't turn up to take part in programmes, but they were not themselves willing to be held to account for their decision to decide that this particular monologue was a violation of the guidelines, the BBC guidelines, not the ones that Cummings so obviously did break and, and knows he broke them, of course he knows them. privately or I assume he does anyway so that's one point the the hiding behind anonymity but that's kind of relatively trivial thing it's about how you govern it's important to the BBC that they have this rather cowardly culture but that's not the significant point a more significant one is that this happens quite often Andrew Neil did a, a monologue attacking Boris Johnson for not taking part in his leader interviews during the election campaign. Now that made me really uneasy because it implied a sort of imperialistic quality to the BBC. We have summoned you to do an interview and you haven't come and And Andrew Neil outlined some of Johnson's famous deep flaws that he wanted to challenge him over. Now that was far more Powerful than Emily Maitlis is partly because Andrew Neil is a brilliant orator. I always think he would have been a fantastic politician because he would have been a mesmerizing speechmaker. I think that he he learned the art at Glasgow University when he was debating. He is an admirer of George Galloway's and George Galloway is an admirer of Andrew Neil's and I think it's based on their admiration of speaking skills and the power of advocacy. So, um, and they're miles apart politically, so it's not on the basis of some great ideological unity. But that was far more powerful, but nothing from the BBC, because I know that those managers are scared of Andrew Neil and wouldn't want to take him on, and it would be quite a task. But if you've decided on that, you then don't take on someone else in such a public way. You could raise it, but in more discreet private ways rather than shafting somebody publicly who you're less frightened of but then there is the deeper issue of the purpose of news and current affairs which i think brings about these kind of slightly wild anomalies that you get these monologues that are arguably outside the guidelines but then you get things like kind of which are seen as totally acceptable or were at the time sending a helicopter up over cliff richard's house these absurd vox pops that um Pollute virtually every bulletin in the Today programme where, you know, the cliche is we've got to hear from the people. This phrase, the people, got the people's government at the moment. But the vox pops tell you nothing. For a start, they have to be balanced by a producer, so it's not the people revealing what the people think. It's a kind of artificial package put together by producers anyway. Until we don't, you know, we hear ten seconds from somebody on a street, you know, oh, I think that Cummings he's got to go, mate. Yeah, I think he's got to go. It's one rule for them and another for us. And then someone else will say, I absolutely back Dominic Cummings. What is all the fuss about? And we've heard from the the people the people are only interesting if you know a bit about them you've got to hear some context so it becomes interesting if you hear someone condemning cummings who was previously a great admirer of cummings not that they would have known who cummings was before the barnard castle eye test trip so you get all this stuff bbc question time where audiences are whipped up panel of five too many it used to be four means panelists get about a minute per topic and you know the shouting matches encourage and you know in advance what the row will be because people have been cast to have a row all this nonsense is celebrated and introduction from Emily Maitlis which is actually you know you could say it's outside the guidelines if it was part of a wider pattern of um, a coherent view of what is and is not acceptable fine but you could also argue that if you read the guidelines and what Cummings did, what Cummings did was outside the guidelines, just as an objective reading of the conditions. Now, you could also argue that because the government was insisting he was within the guidelines, you had to incorporate that within an interview, within the introduction. Fair enough. But let's have that as part of a wider debate and sense of what the BBC is for there hasn't been that sense in news and current affairs or any leadership of a great kind of significance in news and current affairs post the Burt era because John Burt when he was director general gave a very clear sense of what news and current affairs was about I think it applies even more now to his era which was it was to challenge the bias against understanding it was a mission to explain it was to recognize what is significant and what isn't significant just as important and when you have those guiding principles it actually gives you the space to do quite a lot in broadcasting which is a limited medium compared with print where you where words are given space it, it, it guides you through and it gives you a strength of purpose so Burke could appoint people who were politically controversial like Polly Toynbee, Peter Jay and people like that, but they were serious and deep and committed to a mission to explain and a bias against understanding. And being impartial is easy. It's actually easier than writing columns where you have to provoke and say something different every time, even though you've written 10,000 columns. I say this as someone who's been a broadcaster and know exactly how you do impartial and i have been a columnist, and I can tell you the columnist, thing is harder so it's not difficult to be impartial even in the world of twitter but the challenge is to delve deeper and to engage people um, as you adopt a mission to explain and that provides you a protective shield i can tell you against any government and gives you a distinctive role but at the moment i kind of see things all over the place and a new director general needs to get someone in there to do real leadership in news current affairs. is not difficult But it's made difficult when there are so many different apparent values whirling around in which one presenter gets hit, I think, indiscriminately uh, when so much else is accepted. But anyway, that's a long spiel on what was meant to be a footnote to a much, much bigger drama. So Dominic Cummings stays. The lockdown is being lifted. The economics of this are huge. We haven't really looked at the economics of it, but we will because it's massive and big decisions. The easy bit is giving the money away, absolutely the right call to make, but the big decisions are to come how to uh, guide this economy back. And of course, Brexit is absolutely central to that as well. Is it going to get another hit via Brexit? But in the meantime, Guy, I have a barbecue. The sun's still shining have a few more beers and on a beach thousands thousands of you isn't it weird we're not you know no football stadium will be occupied but you can see a beach which is the equivalent of a football stadium anyway as uh, I, I say that because i fully support football stadiums being empty but it does the cram beach is kind of what an image as lockdown is still largely meant to be in place okay well look just a reminder again that the live virtual show is on june the 17th so i very much hope you can uh, join me for that and as i say the tickets are available on the king's place website now and i'll be back with the podcast next week thank you so much for listening have a good week and see you next time